So <clears throat> we're, a, we're a little out of order on our series according to the uh, handout we'd, we'd given. We're, tonight was going to be the night on calculating our numbers, but we did that last week. So you're all glad to know that um, your names do not add up to 666, hopefully. That's good news. And uh, hopefully that was helpful. So tonight we're taking a step back into chapter 12 and looking at how to defeat uh, Satan. So there's, there's a, a piece that I want to start with um, that I wrote a number of years ago that will help kind of set the stage for a few things we want to say tonight. It's a satire. And so you have to be prepared for the, for the, for the allegory as such. It's called The Eschatology of Chips and Salsa, a revelation of St. John Stone. A number of years ago, I heard a new teaching, a teaching that was strange and yet very familiar. And I had heard it from a fellow traveler who told me that he had not derived at this message entirely on his own, but he had been handed down to him in bits and pieces, <clears throat> after which he fashioned it together into a comprehensive whole. Some may refer to it as the Apocalypsis as Papa Fritas Isasa, though commonly it is simply called Revelation of Chips and Salsa. Growing up in the Appalachian Mountains, I had never been exposed to this prophetic teaching. In fact, I knew very little about any foreign food, such as tacos, enchiladas, or burritos. For a while, the old Dairy Queen in my town, which had gone out of business, had become a taco hut, a local variation of the more famous Taco Bell, but it too had been replaced by an establishment selling a different kind of foreign food, CJ's Pizza. It was not actually introduced, <clears throat> I was not actually introduced to chips and salsa as uh, an apervideo, that is an appetizer or an hors d'oeuvre or antipasto, until my first date in college, which by the way is true, and that was uh, 27 years ago yesterday was the first time I'd had chips and salsa. I remember it because it was my first date with Angela and she wanted to introduce me to this new appetizer I had never heard of. Um, as I say here, with the woman who would later become my wife. Although this new teaching remains somewhat obscure, I have no doubt that it will rise to prominence within the church and may even one day be listed as a cardinal doctrine. The importance of the teaching is uh, sure to increase as the popularity of the dish continues to escalate. Because who doesn't like chips and sauce? So the question is, <clears throat> pre-chip, mid-chip, post-chip? That is the question. The technical arguments of the various interpretations of eschatology of chips and salsa could fill a multi-volume dissertation, so I will restrict my comments only to the most basic description of the teaching, along with its most practical applications. When a group of people, two or more, sit down for a meal in which chips and salsa are being served, some of the people will be pre-chip. That is, they will want to pray before the, uh, for the food before anyone takes their first bite. There is also a substratum of the pre-trip doctrine that insists on the prayer being pre-dip, uh, though this group is often marginalized as an extreme form of eschatological fundamentalism. Another major group is best described as being post-chip, which is a belief that the prayer of the thanksgiving, commonly called the blessing, comes after the chips and salsa have been eaten and before the entrees are consumed. 
what often happens is that a post-chip believer is unknowingly sharing the meal with pre-chip believer or believers. The former goes to take the initial bite while the latter launches into prayer. In an attempt not to offend their weaker sibling, according to 1 Corinthians 8, the post-chip believer becomes, in practice, a mid-chip or mid-chipper. Uh, mid-chip is commonly <clears throat> held doctrine practiced by both pre-chippers who forget to pray and post-chippers who do not wish to offend. Next, pre-meal, post-meal, or a-meal. Perhaps it would go without saying that all positions mentioned above share in common the belief known as pre-meal, the belief that the prayer must be offered before the meal. It might come as a surprise to many traditional pre-mealers that the other doctrines of chips and sausage do exist. For example, post-meal. A few scholars have connected this practice with an ancient Jewish custom of thanking God after the meal. Perhaps you have heard that it was said, after the meal, he blessed the cup and passed it. Latent influence of post-meal belief can be found even among the most staunch and stalwart pre-mealers. Many of that tradition can testify to hearing at the end of the meal these words, Lord, that was a good meal. One final category is left behind, namely, ah meal. This particular belief has omitted altogether the prayer for the meal. A very controversial and potentially divisive doctrine, all meal was once commonly held belief in the early church. Some scholars argued that it was even held by none other than St. Augustine. Nevertheless, many pre-meal groups have no latitude whatsoever for this position, and therefore they list it as a heretical position worthy of disfellowship. Uh, a practical theology of chips and salsa, as we close. In the words of the great prophet, Bob, the times, they are a-changing. And in the words of Rupertus Millenius, an otherwise undistinguished German Lutheran theologian of the early 17th century, in the essentials, unity, in the non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. Philip Schaff calls this saying, which is often mistakenly accredited to Augustine, the watchword of Christian peacemakers. That's in his book. History of the Christian Church, Volume 7, page 650. After all, it was Jesus who said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. With the world growing smaller due to globalization, multiculturalism, and some would say post-denominationalism, I recommend that we start offering one another more grace when it comes to saying grace. It hasn't. <clears throat> well, it was published on, the, on a blog once. So, <clears throat> depending on the extent to which you know the debates about Christian eschatology and how, the, how all of this that we're living in will come to an end, uh, you may or may not have picked up on a variety of ideas there. Um, <clears throat> the concept of, of a rapture kind of a, a secret kind of taking away of the saints um, has often been argued in relationship to a time period called the tribulation. And so there are those who are pre-trib, uh, mid-trib, and post-trib, meaning they think the rapture takes place before the tribulation, 
in the middle of the tribulation or after the tribulation. All of those beliefs are beliefs within um, a larger belief called premillennialism, which expects a return, a physical return of Jesus to earth before a millennium, uh, a thousand year reign of Christ on earth. However, in the 18th and 19th century, the most popular view was called postmillennialism, the idea that um, Christianity, through the evangelism of the church, would become the dominant culture and it would reign on the earth for a thousand years, at the end of which Christ would return. Um, that became uh, less popular in the 20th century. It's hard to argue that the world's becoming more Christian and things are getting better after World War I and World War II. <laughs> um, pretty difficult. Oh, yeah, look how Christian we are. We're killing each other. Um, <clears throat> however, it did have, in Pentecostal and Charismatic circles, it did have a resurgence, postmillennialism did, in the 1980s. It's called Kingdom Now. Um, CBN, Pat Robertson, I don't know if you know those names, but that he was a believer of a postmillennialism. Um, <clears throat> the, the final view, amillennialism, is a belief held by uh, many in the early church that took the millennium to uh, a reference from Revelation chapter 20 not to refer to um, a literal kind of thousand years, but rather to refer to the reign of the kingdom of God, in which case it would represent the time between the advents, between the birth of Christ and the return of Christ. Uh, <clears throat> and, and that's the time of the kingdom. Um, of course, the kingdom is not uh, doesn't exist without also the resistance of anti-kingdom forces. Um, but it goes to Jesus' parable of the wheat and the tares. You know, they plant the wheat at night. They go to bed. Someone else came out and planted weeds. And so then, you know, weeks later, as the plants start to grow, they realize, oh, no, we don't just have wheat. We also have tares. We have weeds. So what do we do? Do we go out and try and just pluck up all the, all the tares, all the weeds? Well, if we do that, we'll also end up pulling up the wheat. And so the argument is, no, you just let the two grow until the harvest, and at the harvest, you'll cut them down and then separate them. <clears throat> so are things getting worse? Yes, in a lot of ways they are. But are things getting better? Well, yeah, in a lot of ways they are, right? The, the kingdom is advancing. People, people are coming to faith. They are believing. They're being baptized. They're professing their faith. They're treating each other with love and grace and forgiveness. That's the growth of the kingdom. But also, other things are also growing at the time. So that's, that's the idea behind those. All of those, I think, um, are held by different, different Christian groups and have been uh, from, uh, well, since the beginning, practically. And so, my uh, eschatology of chips and salsa, while well, is intended to entertain, I don't know if entertained you or not, <clears throat> but it's also intended to kind of make a point that... <clears throat> At, at the end of, of it all, um, our <clears throat> particular um, beliefs about how we think it's going to end um, ought not be something that causes us to disfellowship from one another. Like we, we should have more latitude, um, <clears throat> not, not holding so tightly to some particular doctrine that it's not vital. Um, that's, that, that, that can't be healthy. Um, the, uh, I'm working on a sermon that's uh, coming up in a couple of weeks called Doubt Happens. And I've, been, I've been reading um, 
coming up in a couple weeks, coming up this Sunday, I guess. I, <laughs> I better, better, I keep working. It's coming along, it's coming along. <clears throat> yeah, I gotta go. <laughs> Short class tonight. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, there's, there's a way in which uh, certainty is not the best category for faith and practice. Um, because what it does is it kind of shuts down the dialogue. It creates an other that we then can marginalize. And faith and intimacy <clears throat> seem to be at the heart of the relationship both with God and one another. And those that you have trust and faith in, those that you are in relationship with, are people that you can also disagree with. I mean, the closest people in your lives, um, you're not going to leave them because you disagree um, over, over, especially over marginal things. And so uh, we had an elder um, <clears throat> at Oasis for years, and he's still around. He's just, he's just not serving as an elder, but he was very fond of that quote from the last bit. In the essentials, unity, in the non-essentials, diversity, and in all things, charity. So, so whether Augustine said it or whether Rupert said it, um, doesn't really matter. It seems to ring true. So we'll, we'll talk a bit about that, but uh, um, as, as we talk uh, at, towards the end of our lesson tonight. But now, <clears throat> I'd like for you to turn into Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. Revelation 12, verse 11. And it says something like this. Um, this is how they, meaning uh, the children of the woman, those who keep the testimony of Jesus and the word of God, will conquer him, and the him is the dragon, the one, uh, Satan, the one they call the devil. So not a lot of ambiguity there. This is how uh, those who keep the testimony of Jesus and the word of God will, will defeat the devil by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, loving not their lives even unto death, to quote the King James. So there's really three things there. Uh, the first is the blood of the lamb. Now, it hopefully doesn't come as a surprise to you that the book of Revelation, like other biblical books, or particularly other books in the New Testament, uh, have as their starting point the, the kind of central role of Jesus. So <clears throat> in our lesson a number of weeks ago, as we looked at the 144,000, the great multitude, what made the great multitude um, right with God? What made them saved? Right, was not that they had washed their robes and made them white in the blood of their own martyrdom, even though there's a hint at martyrdom in the language there. But <clears throat> they had washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The Lamb that John sees, who can open the scroll, is the Lamb that was slain but is yet now standing, which is just uh, somewhat gruesome but nevertheless, nevertheless potent uh, symbol or metaphor for the resurrected Jesus. Uh, Jesus had died, but he, was, he had been resurrected. 
So it's the blood of the lamb that um, is the first and most crucial uh, point of defeating the devil. Now the good news is that Jesus has already died. And Jesus has already been resurrected. So there is no need for Jesus to die again. In fact, Jesus will never die again. So that the, the ultimate battle is won. Now we might say if the ultimate battle is won, then why is the world the way it is? You know, why does Angela have the flu? Why does Craig have to put up with those animals in the park? Why is Jen getting cursed out at the school? Uh, why is Betty so sick? <coughs> well, we kind of live in this in-between time between the already and the not yet of the kingdom. It's already inaugurated. It is not yet consummated. It has already begun. It is not yet finished. We have the promise and we have the foretaste, the, the, the early uh, hints of what it will be like, but we've yet to see in its fullness what it will be like. Kind of like, <coughs> you know, on Thanksgiving when you start to smell the food, you're like, hmm, it's going to be good. Yes? You know how that feels? And you start to taste just a little bit here and there. You ever do that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? We go in, and like, yeah, I just get a little bit of that stuffing or just a little bit of that turkey, a little bit of that sweet potato casserole. But, of course, there are, there are a few mothers and grandmothers who kind of slap your wrist or hit you with the wooden spoon. Not yet. Not yet. <clears throat> so those little tastes that come before the meal is, is our lives when we experience the, in the kind of fullness and the joy of life. Um, the birth of our children, the, uh, um, the, the faith uh, of, of our friends, uh, baby dedications like this last Sunday, or baptisms, um, or when we pray and someone is healed. Uh, those, those sorts of things are like those, those like the smells and those like taste tests that are like, oh yeah, this is going to be great. But there is this time between when we get those little tastes and smells of those things and when we actually get to sit down and enjoy the meal. And so that's the time that we're living in. Between the death and resurrection of Christ and this time when the kingdom will come and things will be fixed. All things will be made right. We're not there now, quite obviously, even as our prayer requests this evening have shown. But we are headed there. And so the most crucial event to take us from where we were to where we're going has already taken place. And so there's nothing you have to do. You don't have to like work harder. You don't have to you know, try to pull yourself up from your bootstraps. This is not a matter of just having more will or more determination. It is the work of God. And, it, and God has done it. So now this then begs the next question. If the efficacy of the cross and resurrection are so significant, then does it affect the, the totality of reality, of creation, of the cosmos? I mean, of all people? Um, are all people saved? Uh, is it, is, does it affect everyone? Well, <clears throat> It can become a complicated question uh, depending on the metaphor that you use for atonement. So have you heard the, the metaphor before of debt and debt payment? 
I had a debt I could not pay. All right, we sing songs about it. Do you know that one? I didn't, is that a song? I didn't make that up, did I? No. Because if I did, I, that was really good. I was going to write it down. <laughs> Just kidding you. Um, I had a debt I couldn't pay. So let's imagine that. Let's, let's take that. Like that is the metaphor for understanding salvation. So let's say um, I owe some money and Wayne here pays for it. Do I still owe it? No. Wayne, Wayne's paid for it. Can, can I, can I un, unpay, undo Wayne's payment of it? No, that's, that's not how that works. So if we believe that Jesus' death is simply a payment of, of a debt, then if Jesus died, did it pay the debt? Did it pay the debt for everyone? Because if it didn't, then we can't say that Jesus died for everyone. But if it did, then everyone's Christian. How can you not be? If it is a debt you owe, his, his sacrifice paid the debt. Then in what way can anybody be indebted? And for that matter, indebted to whom? Who did God pay the debt to? Do you see what I'm saying? Is it being paid to, back to God? God paid God? I mean, what would that mean? That's kind of a ridiculous concept. So maybe I was indebted to Wayne. <laughs> and he paid the debt, meaning he forgave my debt. But if he paid the debt by virtue of the death of Leslie. <laughs> Sorry about that. You were just there. <laughs> but then he thinks, well, that's a horrible deal for me. I'm going to resurrect her. All right, so that's been taken care of. But in what way can any of us then, or could I, be indebted? Do, do, do you see the conundrum we find ourselves in? How, how is the efficacy, the effectiveness of, of the blood of Christ, or the blood of the Lamb, um, applied to humanity. If Jesus died for everyone, then everyone is saved. So what some theologians have done is say, well, Jesus didn't die for everybody. He died for the elect. The atonement is limited. It becomes a necessary statement, right? Unless you want to say that somehow people earn their own salvation by merit somehow, and that seems problematic because something you can earn, you can lose. Well, that leaves us with two options. Either we need to join the Presbyterian church and hope that we're part of the elect, or we need to join the Unitarian Universalist church because the work of uh, of Christ has redeemed us all. Uh, there is a third option. Uh, well, more than a third option. But there's lots of other options. But there's a third option I'd like to mention, which is the very next passage of Scripture. That is, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. The word of their testimony. That is, that we 
testify of the blood of the Lamb. We, we say, we, we kind of announce our faith, our, our belief, our allegiance to Christ. I'm, I'm with the slain lamb. Um, it's the slain lamb's blood that uh, I rely on. And so this is how then Satan is defeated. By the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. So I'd like to say a few things about what I think that word of their testimony means. Just one second. Fred? Right, we'll get, we'll get to that pit point in just a minute. Well, I was saying, too, you know, about how not everyone, unfortunately, is going to be saved, but Christ died for everyone. Wouldn't that be very similar to Wayne saying, David, I know you have the staff here. I want to take care of it for you. And I say, well, thank you, Wayne, but I, I'll take care of it myself. Yeah, that's an interesting concept, right? So in, in, that, in, that, in that metaphor, then, everyone is forgiven, by God. Wayne was God in this, in this scenario. Um, and everyone was forgiven by God. And so it's not so much that we have to ask for forgiveness. God has already provided forgiveness. But in at least Dave's account, he felt like there's this possibility that we can refuse it. We can turn it down. And that excludes us from it. Which is an interesting thing. Then then we get this kind of love and grace of God that's coming at us, right, at us all. But we have these kind of opportunities in life to kind of turn away from it, to kind of deny it. And so it's not so much an action that brings us in as it is an action that, that, that pushes us out, right? Self-pushes. It's, 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 not, it's not a bad theological way to think through that. And it does defend against a merit-based system, which I find very problematic. But let me say this about witnesses, and then we're going to come back to Fred's point. So let's think about the word of their testimony, like a witness. So in a court case, um, there are different types of witnesses. What kind of types of witnesses can you imagine? A character witness, an eyewitness. Any others? A false witness, yeah. An expert witness. So let's, let's think of those, those three. So we'll go with a... Uh, a character witness, an eyewitness, and an expert witness. So a character witness. Uh, have any of you been asked to testify for someone as a character witness before? No? Well, not in court, but I had a friend that was being <coughs> um, put up for a very secret, special thing in the military. Mm -hmm. And he had to give people that they would come to <coughs> had to testify for their character. Gotcha. Yeah, so um, a similar thing happened with my brother-in-law. Uh, he was getting a background check because he was going to uh, serve as a senior science policy advisor uh, for the White House. And um, he was getting background checks, and they wanted character witnesses. Craig, did you say you'd been a character witness? Yes. Yeah. Same, same situation in the military. Military, right. So... The person you were asked to be a character witness for, was that someone you knew well or just kind of nominally? Yeah, so, so they went to Craig 
to get a character witness of someone because they, he knew that person well. You would not go to someone to get a character witness if they just nominally knew them. Right? Or you've heard of them, right? So, um, let me see if I'll think of uh, somebody famous right now. Um... Trying to not be controversial. Everybody famous seems to be in trouble. Let's say um, Billy Graham. There you go. Have, would any of you, do you think, be asked by a court to be a character witness for Billy? Why not? You don't well, know him well enough. And herein lies a lesson. There are a lot of people who use the word Christian to self-identify. But they're not particularly good character witnesses for Jesus. They're pretty unfamiliar with who he is. They don't know his character. It doesn't help if we're bad character witnesses. Or if we're unfamiliar Part of what would make us a good character witness for Jesus, right, the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, is to know Jesus well. In fact, we often probably give Jesus a bad name. Um, when I was in college and seminary for a while, I used to wait tables at restaurants. The worst day, the worst time to work as a server at a restaurant is Sunday afternoon. Church people are the worst. They're the worst tippers and they're the most demanding. So I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. And you know I love you. But this Sunday, after church, if you're going out to eat, if you're not going to leave a big tip and be nice to those people, I want you to go home and put on your best Budweiser t-shirt and cut off blue jeans and you go in there like you didn't come from church. I don't want you representing Jesus. Don't leave him a track that looks like money. Not, not what Jesus would do. If you're not, not going to be nice to them and you're not going to leave them a big tip, then don't look like you just came from church. It is a bad witness. All right, next. We said, uh, character witness, we said eyewitnesses. Once again, um, I can think of all sorts of events that I'm sure you've heard of. Say, um, when I was living in California, there was a national um, case. It got national attention. Uh, Scott Peterson had killed his wife, uh, Lacey. And they, she was found in the Berkeley Marina, which is, I drove past it every Sunday on my way to church. We went to church up in San Pablo, and we lived down in Oakland, and we passed the Berkeley Marina. So they lived over in Modesto, and she was apparently killed there, but then her body was, was dumped in the marina. Um, I was never called as a witness on that case. Not only because I didn't know them and couldn't serve as a character witness, but I couldn't serve as an eyewitness. I hadn't seen anything. We talk about 
overcoming Satan by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, if you can't give a good character witness for Jesus, that's problematic because you you're unfamiliar with his character. It's also problematic if you have nothing to say about what you've seen. Have you, have you seen Jesus do anything in your life, in the life of your family, in the life of your church? <clears throat> we don't just need people talking about empty platitudes and, and generalizations. But if somebody can say, um, as uh, Angela did a couple of weeks ago, I was blind, they prayed for me, and now I see. It's an eyewitness testimony. I saw something happen. <clears throat> Too many, I think, um, again, using the, the title Christian, but have never, um, never been an eyewitness. Last, of course, then, is the expert witness. And in some ways, that's what we're doing here tonight. I mean, who shows up on a Wednesday night to do a Bible study? I mean, you people do, but I mean, who else does? We study. We're not ashamed of the gospel. We work hard. We, we labor in word and doctrine. That's what Paul says to Timothy. Study, show yourself to be approved, not ashamed of the gospel. Laboring, that means working, in word and in doctrine. In, in, the, in, the, in the studying of scripture and the development of, of theology and doctrine around the scripture. We need experts. Um, I think that's what I am. I mean, did the BA, Bible and Religion, did the Master of Divinity in Seminary, did a PhD in Biblical Studies, uh, teach at a university, you know, part of the guild of biblical scholars. You know, sometimes they'll say, biblical commentators or biblical scholars say. I don't know if you've heard that before, but people say that. That's me. I'm one of those people. Um, we need those people in the life of the church. Someone who's kind of dedicated their life to the study of Scripture. And so then together, character witnesses and eyewitnesses and expert witnesses then testify about the blood of the Lamb. And that is defeating to the devil. But there's one more point. And this comes to Fred's point. Wouldn't it be nice if the way you defeated the devil was by the blood of the lamb and your word of your testimony? That's short and sweet. Because Jesus already died. And how really, how difficult is it to say, I believe in Jesus. Thank you, Lord. But it didn't end there. It says, by the, word, by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, loving not their lives even unto death. And what does that mean? Well, it may mean that even if your life is threatened, you don't recant the faith. Chances are, living in Lakeland or Chattanooga, you're not going to have an opportunity to die for Jesus. There just aren't a lot of martyrs in this part of the world. And to that we can say, thank God, right? I prefer to live a life where I don't have to die. I can go to Publix. I can go to work. I can come to church if I want. 
I can show up at any other public place. I'm Christian and I don't feel at all at risk. But there are places in the world where being Christian does put you at risk. And those people are loving not their lives even unto death. The question then, what would it mean for us? Is there a way for us in our context also not to love our lives even unto death? And I think there are in two significant ways. One of that means to love, to, it's the blood of the lamb. Again, that's been done. There's nothing you have to do there. The word of your testimony as a character and I and expert witness even until you die. Meaning you maintain your witness until death. Even if your death is by natural causes at 99. You maintain your witness to death. And I think we all can do that. Even living in Lakeland. Right? We can maintain our witness. But there's another feature or aspect I think that could be there too. That is that I love not my life more than my testimony. And this is the challenging part. And I've, and I've hinted at this in other nights before. That the, the warning of revelation to us in our context is not so much be faithful in the midst of persecution since there's not a lot of serious persecution going on around here. But to be, to be faithful and not be assimilated into the worldly way of being. Like we said last week with the mark of the beast. The worldly way of being. That is that uh, I'm not loving my own life. I'm, I'm, I'm caring for the other. I'm sacrificial in my giving. I, I volunteer my time. I speak up for the voiceless. Uh, I stand up for the powerless. And in these actions, right, I'm loving not my life, and I'm, I'm being faithful to my testimony, my words. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, loving not your lives even unto death. I mean, there's certainly a certain level of uncomfort there. And not to say that um, obviously bearing, bearing witness is akin to uh, evangelism. Um, although I don't think it's simply reducible to evangelism. Right. right. Yeah, it's more, it's more than that. It is, it is the... Yeah, so, so it does give to that, right? So we, to give our testimony, in some ways, there, there's these major ways in which we do it, right? Uh, baptism. Baptism is this very significant way in which we kind of publicly say, uh, though in the context of a church, but still publicly say, um, I'm with Jesus. Right? It's not just something we've done internally. It's now something that literally we are doing externally. Like the water is externally hitting us. We might internally take the bread and wine of communion, but we are externally experiencing the water of baptism. Yeah, Fred? I 
after he got to the holiness of God, and then he realized his own sinfulness. When I choose during the course of the day, and I, I, I'm appalled at my propensity to sin, and it, it, it breaks my heart um, more times than I would like to admit. But there is part of the testimony. It's the unseen realm that people around me see. They may say, oh, you know, he's, he's good and stuff like that. But the inner struggles, that, mm. that's part of the testimony. I would back that up from in, in Matthew, where Jesus said to those, he said, Depart from me, O person, for I never knew you. Mm. But Lord, I cast out demons in you. Lord, I did this and that. You know, doing to be seen sometimes, opposed to doing just because I'm his, because I'm so in love with him. I so live, I so yearn to please him. But then the everyday struggle in the end of this, the word. Yeah, I. It's part of the work of the church. Yeah, I think, I think that is a good point, Fred. Um, that loving their lives, not even to death, could mean martyrdom. It could mean kind of taking a public stand for Jesus. It could mean um, putting, putting ourselves at risk, you know? You know, in our jobs, maybe it's not popular to, to stand up for the marginalized or to kind of to care for the weak uh, or in our culture, um, but then also this aspect that you bring, there is this sense in which loving our lives not even unto death could be this very dying to self, right? When we experience the kind of raw reality of, of our own uh, unrighteousness. So um, certainly the things I've learned with the foster girls, right? That I'm not the patient man I thought I was. I was just living a life that was easy, right? With my own kids that didn't misbehave. And so, of course, I was patient, right? I'm around you nice people. Um, at the college, they treat me nice. So where, where do I go that I need to practice patience? I didn't have anywhere. So I just thought, mistakenly, that I was patient. And then I found out, not so much. So is dad number one coming back? <laughs> No, hopefully not. But, but it's not, um, life is not a steady progress. It's more of a process. So sometimes it might be three steps forward, but then one step back. Or maybe three steps back sometimes. But, but yeah, it's this process that we're in. And, and, and therein it lies. I'd like to close uh, just by saying this. Um, in terms of these time periods that we started off with, in Revelation 11, we were told that the city would be trampled for 42 months and that the witnesses would prophesy for 1,260 days. <coughs> As we move into chapter 12, we're then told that the beast will make war and conquer um, the children of the women for 42 months. It's the same amount of time that the city would be destroyed. And we're told that this overcoming of, of Satan and the beast will last for 1,260 days. So we, both of those get used twice. In each case, the 42 months is kind of the negative judgment and destruction. And in each case, the 1,260 is the positive prophesying or witnessing overcoming. And, and then there's the, the ever so opaque... Uh, reference to the woman clothed in the sun being sequestered 
in the desert and protected uh, from the dragon. The dragon releases this river who's going to kind of drown her. And the earth, it's interesting, the earth plays a character in the story. The earth stands up and swallows the river and protects the woman. The woman's time of protection, though, her sequestering, is for a times, a time, times, and half a time, which is a, a very poetic and somewhat cryptic way of saying three and a half. It's a time, times, and then half a time. So time is one, times is two, half a time. That's three and a half. Uh, it, it is John's favorite number for this in-between time we find ourselves in. How long will evil be active in the world, making destruction, not just on the world, but also the people of God, for three and a half, 42 months, three and a half years? How long will the witnesses prophesy? How long will those who keep the testimony of Jesus and the word of God overcome Satan for 1,260 days, also three and a half. Um, how long is, is the woman uh, sequestered for times, times, and half a time, for three and a half? It is, it is a play on a number out of Daniel chapter 9. And there, Daniel has these 70 weeks, and there's a variety of ways in which that can be interpreted, but... What's interesting is, is the final week, the, the week of, uh, that seems to be of judgment, is interrupted by God. Uh, it doesn't come to an end. Uh, we don't know when it's interrupted in Daniel. We just know that it is interrupted. John seems to be interpreting, I think, that interruption with his three and a half, right? So if you're told there's, there's seven, like the final week at seven days, and it gets interrupted, I mean, where's, where's a good place to... Interrupt it. Yeah, like halfway through, right? And so, by, by this multiple use of the three and a half for John, he, part of what he's, be, he's saying there is that the in-between time is not an ultimate time. It's a limited time. Um, he never uses the number seven to talk about, uh, in terms of time, to talk about destruction. Because seven he uses for this idea of completeness. So there's never like this complete destruction of the earth. There's never this kind of complete destruction of the people. Um, all of that is always cut short. And it's cut short by God. And so the, 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 I think the, the lesson to be learned there is that um, though the days are long, the years are short. that um, God will bring this thing to a positive end. This is very much, this could be a Sunday morning epiphany sermon for us, right? Whatever happens, God happens. Yeah, so in the end, God happens. God, God brings the evil to an end. And God rewards the righteous. And God punishes the wicked. And we will not suffer forever. Um, so, uh, just in case you're wondering how to defeat the devil, uh, it's a three-step process. The blood of the lamb, check. 
It's been done. The word of your testimony, so to speak up, and loving your lives, not even unto death. And that's how you conquer the dragon. It is the central point of Revelation. Like literally, it's halfway through the book. Um, things that come before it lead up to that point and things that come after it fall from that point. That if you want to know the revelation of Jesus Christ is that Satan is defeated and this is how. Amen.